0: Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 50. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. We have a very special guest for this podcast, Mr. Eric O'Berry. Before we get to Eric, though, let's thank our sponsors. Starting with sponsor number one, numero uno. The big cheese is the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Information about the IJA can be found at juggle.org. Let's also thank me by going to Ringdama and buying yourself a Ringdama at ringdama.com our newest sponsor is Zing Toys, makers of the Zing Dama, which can be found at ZingToys.com. Okay, we thank the IJ, we thank Ring Dama, we thank Zing Toys. Let's thank you listeners by bringing you our special
1: guest, Mr. Eric
0: O'Berry. Eric O'Berry. O'Berry? Give us the, the, the correct pronunciation of your name, Eric.
1: My, the correct name to pronounce my name is O'Berry. O'Berry. So... Yeah.
0: Reminds me of my act, where used to go O'Berry oh, in the Rasvini <laughs> Brothers, so that's pretty easy for me to remember. You're known as a juggling historian as well as a professional juggler of great accomplishment. Let's start with the history of Eric O'Berry. Where did you, were you born, what was your early childhood like, and how did you discover juggling?
1: I was born in the north of Sweden in a little town called Skellefteå, and uh, there was no jugglers there, so I couldn't, yeah, there was nothing too much to be influenced by in that regard and there was also no internet at that time so i grew up my hobbies were skateboarding and magic magic was very difficult to learn because it's yeah it's a lot of secrets that are difficult to find out but skateboarding was a little bit easier to get get involved with so that's what i did in 1998, I believe there came a film called *Caught Clean* by Invisible Skateboards, and it had—it's made by a guy called Laban Diaz. Yep. He visited the IJA festival around that time, and he put a bunch of jugglers in the film.
0: I make a brief appearance in *Caught Clean*. If you—if you, if you exactly. look exactly—if <laughs> you don't blink, yeah. I'm in there.
1: No, so. no, I remember it—the six cup uh, shaker cups, six shaker yeah, cups. Yeah, I had the
0: six ac aluminum cups at that time, or I don't know if they're aluminum, they were the ones that left the gray dust on your fingers.
1: Oh, okay. The aluminum powder. Yeah, so it, so it was that, that movie, and that was very influential for me. Like, I could juggle three ball, a three-ball cascade before then, but I didn't know that there was other juggling to practice, so I saw that movie, and that was, blew my mind, and there was so much in it, and I saw Dan Ho- uh, Dan Menendez do a head roll in that film, and Sean
0: McKinney was a big part of that film.
1: Yeah, Sean McKinney had his own segment uh, in it and did incredible stuff with cigar boxes and balls and clubs and street juggling. So there was kind of a little bit of a overlap there between skateboarding and, and juggling. And to me, it was, both of them were you know just tricks. So I was int- interested in tricks, magic tricks, juggling tricks, skateboard tricks, anything really. So that's what got me into juggling.
0: So skateboarding, were you more like into like a Rodney Mullen, sort of freestyle, like tricks with a skateboard type of skater?
1: Uh, yeah, definitely. I was into the technical stuff, not ramps and big stairs or handrails and stuff. I was inter- interested in the technical things. and yeah.
0: So after Cock Clean, how did you advance your juggling knowledge and your juggling ability?
1: At the time, in '99, I believe it was, they started a circus school in Stockholm. It was kind of a, like a pilot project that they were supposed to do only for one year. So they, they did it for one year, and it was they thought it was so successful, so they wanted to do it again. I believe the first course was '97, and then they did it again in '99. So I heard about this course, and I applied because I liked juggling. And I thought that would be an opportunity for me to to get to practice and perhaps perform a little bit. So I did that one-year course. And when that course was over, the, the school expanded and they started a three-year course. I was still pretty low level and I had no experience really. So I applied for the three-year course as well. And it's that that three-year course that eventually became the the course that a lot of great jugglers in Sweden have been to now, uh, that's called the University of Dance and Circus, DOC. And was uh, Jay Gilligan teaching at that time? My main teacher was a guy from Finland called Maxim Komaro. Mm -hmm. Jay Gilligan was a guest teacher at a few occasions, so I encountered him during my three years a couple of times, yes. But my main teacher was Maxim.
0: And he was from the group, uh, the Peapod Jugglers. Yeah, that is correct. Yeah, their, their DVDs, their videos were very influential in the United States at a certain time.
1: Those videos, they came out during the, my school time. I knew Maxime, of course, very well. And, and the films were extremely influential to everybody around here, too. So, yeah, that was a great time.
0: They're very revolutionary.
1: What was in the water
0: in Sweden? How did that, that sort of great burst of creativity happen?
1: I don't know. I think it had a lot to do with Maxime and Villevalo. Like, I think they had a specific mindset and they kind of was, they were looking out for specific type of juggling and they were very interested in, you know, new ideas and creative ways to explore juggling in new ways. And I think also that the film that I mentioned earlier, Caught Clean, I think that had a big influence on them too, with Sean McKinney and also the way the movie was shot before caught clean and the peapot most juggling videos they were of the instructional kind you know a juggler in his garage with a black
0: sure like a finnegan video or something like a david finnegan yeah
1: exactly usually how juggling videos was made prior to this and then caught clean came out which had juggling that was filmed kind of like a skateboard movie and peapot took that aspect of it i think and kept developing it and it became they were very they had their a very specific way of going about doing it of course but i think that they were also very much grounded in the, the caught queen films
0: and are they supported more by the government like by grants and stuff it seemed like the idea of sort of having to do it professionally is sort of different in sweden there's more support by the the council or something like that how does that work
1: we have an art council in Sweden that they give out grants to artistic projects. And the, there's a couple of different things that you can do. The, you, all, you can also get support from the city or the municipality or how do you say that word?
0: Municipality, the, the,
1: yeah. Yeah, the, the region. There's a, there's a couple of different things to do depending on like what you align yourself with in terms of do you do school shows or do you do theater shows or do you do more like just exploring research there, there's all kinds of stuff that you can apply for and it's it's really a lottery the whole grant thing like sometimes you like I've applied for it now for yeah since I probably applied for it the first time in 2003 so it's almost yeah, you know, was that 14 years I've been applying for grants and it's it's really a hit-and-miss you, you never really know <laughs> when you get them and when you don't now when you went to the the school was your plan to work professionally? Were you, did you want
0: to become a professional juggler?
1: When I went to the school at first, the first that first year, I think I didn't really know anything about what I wanted to do. You know, I was more like I was interested in juggling, so I wanted to do that. Right. And at during my time in school, I had the chance to perform a little bit, and and I think then when I had the opportunity to do another three years of school, school, then I thought that, okay, yeah, maybe performing could be something for me. And
0: what kind of schedule would you have at the school? How many hours of, of practice would you do?
1: The schedule was usually you would start, I think, eight or nine, and then you have three hours of what they call discipline training, which was, would be your specialization in circus. So in my case, it would be juggling. So I would have juggling up until lunch with a teacher and then there would be a lunch break and then after lunch there would be some kind of could be a dance class or a theater class or it's a this modern approach to circus so there's always different things It could be you know st- you could have a stunt man that came and gave a hmm. workshop or a right. someone teaching you anatomy or all, all kinds of things really
0: Would they help you put an act together? Would sort of the goal be, how would you sort of choose what you would specialize in?
1: Since I was the very, very first batch of students at this school, I don't think anybody really knew anything about what was gonna happen to us. So it was, I was really, you know, the guinea pig there. Right. For the very end, I made an act and there was projects along the way, but they were very not very thought out, I, I think, in retrospective, right. which, which is not necessarily a bad thing for when you're in school because you get to try a lot of different things and you get to fail and you get to try things that you also realize that that's a bad idea to, to do sure. it this way. Like in retrospective now, I'm, I'm pretty happy about what I went through in school. There was a lot of frustration at the time but now I can look back at it and be like yeah it was a pretty good time. And when
0: you left school did you did you start to work what kind of jobs did you do?
1: Yeah, when I left school I was in a pretty spe- uh, special situation. During my last year I started a company together with two actors and another juggler. We started to work towards a show on a more long long perspective like we wanted to work for a year or something before we right. made the show and i was also someone came a theater director in the city came to see my graduation act she asked me if i wanted to be in a theater play that she was doing in a in a very nice theater in the in the middle of stockholm she was doing a theater piece with that had some actors and some circus people and it was kind of it was a mixed cast, right. So she won. She knew I did a little bit of magic and uh, some juggling. So she cast me as a magician juggler, or something like that, in in this theater piece. So straight out of school, I did that. Now looking back at it, I'm like, oh, that was that was a lot of luck. Like not so many people get to work, you know, straight away out from school. But when it, when it happened to me, I was more like, oh, okay, I guess this, <laughs> that's this how, is how it that's works. That's how it works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I was in a super nice theater already from the get-go. That was a great experience. And with some of the people in that show, we started a monthly variety show that I then co-directed for 10 years. Wow. Well, what
0: was the, the name of that? Did you have a title for it? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. That, was, uh, that show was called Salon Giraffe, like Salon Giraffe. Okay. Why a giraffe? Like the animal? Uh, they- Well, that's actually a funny story. In the beginning, it started as just an open stage. And then there was, there's a big company in Sweden called Circus Circar. I don't know if you heard about it. Yeah, I've heard of Circus Cirkar. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They do shows all over the place Mm -hmm. now. But they had some years prior, they also had an open stage in another place in the city, but they had stopped doing that for a while. And the So we started kind of like a new open stage for different type of performances. And when the director of Silkeard heard about this, that we were doing an open stage, apparently she was really pissed off. (laughs) Okay. And that we were taking her idea of doing an open stage, which obviously isn't, isn't invented by her, but... That was the case anyway, so we were like, oh, okay, well, I guess we don't have to call it an open stage then, so let's make it into a show, and that's how Salon Giraffe was born, so it was really, it was really like an open stage from the beginning, but then someone got pissed off, and we were just like, okay, we don't need to do an open stage anyways, we can just do a show and run it the way we want to, so it then became more of like a show that we would create, every month we would create a few of the pieces, so, we, it could be things like we did, uh, we put wigs on dogs for one show. <laughs> okay. <I remember. laughs> All right. We had a really great band that would always play. They would play music and we'd have weird stuff like people practicing parachute jumping or fireman drills or old folk dances. And there would always be like weird aspects to this show. And then after a while, we also managed to get a really good MC a guy who's a uh, pretty successful actor now in Sweden called, uh, Robert Fuchs. And, uh, he's a, he's a comical genius. And once we got him to MC the show, it really, it really took off and it, it was very successful and it, it all, it would always sell out. So it was, it was great to do that show.
0: Now I met you at, I think the first WJF was, is that correct?
1: That's correct. In 2005, that's the first time I went to the United States.
0: You're known in the United States, along with David Kane as a juggling historian. So was the the interest in the history of juggling also come along with the, the interest in actually doing the juggling itself?
1: The interest in history came later. In the beginning I thought it was really hard to relate to the history stuff. I I would flip through, you know, I'd seen, you know, the books from Carl Heinz in stores and stuff, but mm-hmm. it was really difficult for me to connect what I was doing to what I was seeing in those pictures. I thought the clothing was weird and the product <laughs> odd and it was difficult for me to connect and see connections to what I was doing in those type right. of pictures. Now when I think back about that I think that's pretty a pretty normal approach when something is new to you it's you're very specialized in your interest and then when you realize when you learn more about it you can see it at a greater depth and it's easier for you to see relations and connections and stuff like that so
0: i got interested basically because of carl's book i think that uh, his first two books those four thousand years of juggling even though like you said that to see someone like uh Wearing like what Chagall would wear, like the the sort of leotard
1: kind yeah. of
0: outfit, uh, it fascinated me. But it also was a bit hard to relate to. You started to do a lot of work with Jay Gilligan. Is that someone who you met out in Sweden? And how, how did he become an instructor out there? I mean, is that something where they they reached out to him?
1: Yeah. Yeah. At first, he was hired as a guest teacher. So my the main teacher was Maxim, and mm-hmm. then there would be guest teachers every once in a while. So I'd have people like. Like Jay, but also a guy in France called Martin Schwitzke and Denis Pommier and uh, Ben Richter, who's a mm-hmm. British juggler based in Germany and some other people. So we would have, you know, like kind of f- fresh, fresh blood every right. once in a while on the teacher side. So that was really great. And when Maxime stopped teaching, uh, they hired Jay f- to be the full time coach or the, the the main coach of the school.
0: Right, because I also saw you with uh, Team RDL. I brought you to one of the, the juggling festivals. Mm-hmm. Was that you, Jay, and Patrick? Patrick Elmert?
1: That was me, and from the beginning, I think it was an idea from me and Jay and Tom Renegade. Me and Jay had a bunch of ideas for for new juggling props, and we presented them to some different people, and Tom Renegade was really excited about it. So... Then we proposed to do this team RDL, and we got Wes Peden and Patrick Elnert involved, and we were kind of exploring these concepts together. Uh, Yeah, around 2008, 2009, I believe.
0: Yeah, that's the year I think you guys came out to the IJA. Yeah. As far as uh, your work with Jay, you also, of course, have teamed up recently on uh, something you presented at the festival, uh, called the definition of juggling. You did several lectures, but that one seemed to be a lot of garnered a lot of interest. Now, why do you think that there needed to be a sort of universal definition of juggling to begin with?
1: I don't think there needs to be one, but <laughs> okay. I think I think that there is one already. So let me explain a little bit how I look at this. As both you and me know, depending on who you talk to around the world, everybody has a little bit of a different understanding of what juggling, the word juggling represents to them. Like mm-hmm. if I would talk to you, it's, it's going to be a little bit different from what I'm perhaps used to around here. And if I talk to someone in France, I'm going to get a little bit of a different idea from that person. And if I talk to someone who's perhaps very old or something, they might have a different approach too. Um, this is really how it's been for a long time, all these different understandings. So what I wanted to do was, instead of defining juggling locally, like, I, of course, I could take either one of these definitions, uh, e- understandings, and kind of e- try to extract a definition from one of them.
0: Do you think it's a regional thing? Is that what you're ta- I mean, I don't really look at the definition of juggling as a, a regional, because you'd have a different de- definitions, even within a very tight community so yeah
1: yeah i don't i don't i agree with you i don't think it's regional either i think it's very it's groups basically of understanding probably because people hang out a lot and talk a lot and a little group of understanding would would exist right the old approach that jugglers would have to this problem if, if you think it's a problem would be that there would be one person presenting their understanding and then someone else would Present a contradictory understanding, and then they would kind of argue who was right about
0: it. <laughs> right. Okay.
1: That's that's kind of the usual way of going about it. And I wanted to kind of zoom out from the entire thing and and see, is there some way that we can talk about juggling that's going to be true for everybody?
0: Okay. Do you feel that after you did your presentation that you were successful? Do you think the definition now has sort of become a universal? acceptance of your
1: definition i don't think it's going to be like that really i think it's not like i'm presenting a new idea basically what i'm doing is that, is that i look at all these local or regional or cultural or however you want to do these groups of understanding and i look at each group and i say okay what's true for every group no matter how you who you talk to there each single group is going to have a couple of activities that they see as juggling for some And there's going to be some common link between them. Right. Some some group would say, yeah, it's object manipulation, for example. And then they think, oh, and some other group maybe is a bit more conservative and they're going to be like, no, juggling is throwing and catching with more objects than the amount of hands. So it's that concept that kind of connects the different juggling activities. So from this kind of outside perspective, you could say that each group has a number of activities that are connected the way that they're connected is going to be different from each group right
0: right the, the way they subset it like you said like a exactly. flow like the flow community might be like well it's all juggling whether it's poi or staff or or a hula hoop
1: yeah they're going to be more along the it's a manipulation of objects and then it's juggling
0: so i'm pretty specific my, me personally like if someone's doing the devil stick yeah, I, I think they're doing the devil stick, and if they were th- right. they were to juggle, the ha- the two hand sticks and the center stick, mm-hmm. I would say now, now they're juggling the devil stick.
1: I can totally relate to that. That's then one group that could see juggling like that, and I definitely have belonged to that group at some point too.
0: Uh, to me, like I say, it's more of a like a juggler is a, is a job title or a definition of a of a profession, yeah. and to juggle. Like you asked me before, like if someone's bouncing a ball on their head, are they juggling? Even though right. it's in the context of a juggling act. Yeah. Like, like if Francis Brunn is, is bouncing the tennis ball on his forehead, is that juggling? And I said, no, he, he's bouncing a ball on his head. So maybe I'm yeah. just a pretty literal. I mean, certainly he's doing it within the context of a juggling act. Mm-hmm. But to me, juggling is sort of a physical feat. It's yeah. not, not a big subset of like, well, yo-yo is juggling.
1: Right, right, right. No, I, I totally understand what you're saying there. The, in terms of each group, though, they're going to have something else. Someone else might say that juggling is all these tricks with objects. Sure. No matter how you manipulate them, it's going to be juggling. But what I recognize then is that no matter which group that you ask, they all recognize a three-ball cascade as juggling.
0: Right, right. That's a definite... Uh... What you call it, you call that the base or the.
1: In each group, all the activities are connected, even if they're not connected in the same way. Like if we talk about the Dan Holzman understanding and the, you know, hippie in France <laughs> understanding, right. they're going to be different, right? Sure. But they're going to be connected, the activities of, of the understandings of each group, right? But both, all the groups, they're going to see the three ball cascade as juggling. So then I was thinking that perhaps you could see the three ball cascade as kind of the default form of right. juggling, the one form of juggling that everybody recognizes.
0: Interesting. Now what, so my oh. thing where I got thrown off was like foot juggling. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at foot juggling, it's, it's stereotypically with one object, like a chair mm-hmm. or a table or umbrella. Yeah. I mean, certainly yeah. with the balls and stuff, I've seen people. In fact, I saw the video the other day of a girl juggling just with her feet. Mm-hmm. like three large balls using only her feet, like a cascade, which I don't know if i would seen that before.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But when you see someone juggling a table and they call mm-hmm. it foot juggling, yeah. I understand that as juggling. Like, okay, cause because it's sort of more because the title or the, the sort of common feeling about it is that it's just with one object, like contact juggling. It seems yeah. to be different because it's sort of in the title of the, the definition of the activity that's become accepted.
1: Yeah, right, right. I've also spent a lot of time tinkering about those different aspects because there is the juggling. There is something there, you know, when you throw and you catch, and the one throw kind of forces the next thing to happen. Right. If you, for example, ask someone, can you juggle? You don't ask them if they can spin a f- table with their feet. So the way I dealt with this is that I thought that maybe. The word juggling has represented both a specific activity and kind of like an overall genre. Sure, right. Uh, so, for an example, if you take sports, that's the genre. That's a genre, and basketball is a specific activity in that genre.
0: Mm. So, you might juggling as a genre would include cigar boxes and devil sticks and Diablo. So, the same right. way the genre of sports includes basketball, even though not every sport is basketball.
1: Exactly. So the lucky thing for the people to do sports is that they have distinct words for each of the specific activities. Whereas in juggling, we have the same word to represent the genre and one of the activities.
0: Like in soccer, they certainly say that if someone is juggling the soccer ball, yeah. that they're basically kicking it one ball with their foot or feet. Right,
1: right, right, yeah.
0: That's very interesting. Now, uh, how do you feel you sort of came across this sort of more scholarly interest in juggling? Is that always been something, the way you approach things in general?
1: Yeah, I mean, that started in 2007 when I met Carl Heinz for the first time. Jay Gilligan was working at the Wintergarten in Germany, in Berlin, and uh, I went to visit him, and he had met Carl a few times, and he suggested that we go and visit him, so we went to Carl's apartment, and we got to flip through all of his books and ask him, you know, whatever questions we wanted. and It was really a great time. And then when I came back to Sweden, I did a course at the university, and that course was led by Jay Gilligan and uh, the late Luke Wilson. Uh, it was a course about the relationship between juggling and music. And in that course, I got the task to write about the history of composition in juggling. how we we make routines and transitions and that kind of thing. So then I had to start writing a little bit about juggling in order to give this presentation at that course. So that was really the first time I started to write something about juggling. And around the same time, I was also going to the Swedish juggling convention and I was thinking, oh, I I could give a little lecture here about the history of juggling. So I had those two kind of projects that was about writing and presenting juggling. And around that time then came, really, I had to think about, what well, what is juggling then? If I'm going to write about this and if I'm going to talk about this, how what is it then? So that's when it really took off for me, these, this kind of thinking.
0: And you became an expert on one juggler in particular. I know you gave a lecture at the IJ on uh, Paul. And you corrected you my pronunciation before we started the podcast. So it's Paul. You would say there's two different ways. One is Cinca The British way?
1: He first started off as an acrobat in a troupe, and he was led by an Italian called Cinque Valli. So it's like the Italian way of saying five, which is which is Cinque. And right. then Valli is a, is a name.
0: So Valli was not his original name. He took the name. From,
1: from the, the master troop. of the troop, yeah. Oh,
0: okay. Do you know his original name then before yeah.
1: he was Valli? Yes. His original name was Paul Brown. Paul Brown, yeah.
0: How disappointing. <laughs> okay. And where where was he born then, Paul Brown?
1: He was born in in a city in Poland called Lesno, but he grew up in Berlin.
0: He, was he adopted by the uh, the troupe? Was he a, an orphan, or how did he become a part of the acrobats?
1: There's a couple of different versions about that actually, how he got involved. But he says he says himself that he won a gymnastics competition. And one of the acrobats from the troop saw him there and wanted him to join the troop. And then he ran away from home and joined this, this troupe. And he was led by, it was called the Cinque Valle troop.
0: There's also a story that he could throw up a chalkboard and write the letter A before the chalkboard would be caught again as a schoolboy. Is that just a story I'm, I'm imagining? Or is that something that was written somewhere?
1: No, that, that's, that's one of his claims, that he <laughs> claims this to be the first uh, juggling trick that he invented, was to put a, a chalk on a slate and then throw both the objects into the air, catch the chalk first, and with three quick uh, strikes, put the letter A on the chalkboard and then catch it.
0: Let me ask you about one of the famous uh, Paul Chinkavalli stunts, because it's one that I sort of adapted to do myself. I do it with a cabbage, battle axe, and blowgun. I remember reading about it, and the, the way I read it was he would juggle a turnip, a fork, and a knife with one hand. That's correct. And hold the blowgun with his other hand.
1: Uh not not really, not really. No, like okay. No, he would have uh, he would have those objects. He would have the blowgun in his belt. Okay. So he would juggle a normal cascade with a knife and a fork and the turnip. I gotcha. He would throw the turnip high and throw the knife into it. And then he would grab the blowgun. He would still have then the fork in his hand. He would then grab with the the empty hand the blowgun from the belt and shoot a dart into the turnip. And then after that, catch it on the fork.
0: That seems very impossible. The idea of throwing the knife into the flying turnip. Because that's what kind of threw me when I tried to duplicate it.
1: Yeah, I don't know. He, when he talks about this himself, there's pictures of him doing it, doing yeah. it in a magazine. He says that he stopped performing it because it was, such, it was such a quick moment that he didn't think that the audience appreciated it enough.
0: Yeah, I always remember reading the, the stories about him and sort of his unusual, weird combination stunts. And There was another one I remember where he would have a large, what, uh, big tub he had like a helmet with a spike.
1: Yeah, the old German beast helmet.
0: And a, a large tub would be spinning and he'd knock the post out and it would fall with like uh, several meters to be caught on the spike on his head.
1: Yeah, that's another one of his tricks. And before I remember, you asked about the pronunciation.
0: Yes, the two ways.
1: So at first it was Cinque Valle, but then he, in 1893, he became British actually. And he was very proud of of that, and he really tried to become British. So he would actually pronounce his name Chinky Wally, like a British way Chinky Wally.
0: <laughs> Did he have a good a career overall? It was interrupted by the war, wasn't it? His career?
1: Yeah, um, he was very successful as a juggler. He's, in a way, you can say that he was the first juggler because before him, if you look at people who, who are documented doing juggling before him, most of them, they, did, they were not pure jugglers. They did a little bit of magic, or they may, maybe did wire walking, or they did other things, mm-hmm. not what we would perhaps refer to as juggling today, or at least since we're, we have, we're still debating about the def- definition. But, right,
0: but he, his identity was as a juggler primarily.
1: Right, right. He is really the person that made this distinction between juggling and magic. That juggling is something that you practice and it's based on skill. And magic is based on secrets and gimmicks.
0: Right, there's no deception in juggling. It's all exactly. out there in the open.
1: Because if you look at early interviews with Chinky and early uh, articles about him, sometimes he is referred to as a conjurer, which is uh, another word for a magician. So he, he was really the first to start talking about this specifically in interviews, and he would say that he's not a conjurer, and a conjurer is trying to deceive you, and I'm trying to do the opposite. I'm trying to show you exactly what it is I'm doing, and the stuff I'm doing is based on skill. There's no trickery involved.
0: At that time, it was basically known as juggling. I mean, the name itself, even juggling, is that how he would refer to himself as a juggler or a jongleur?
1: He referred to himself as a juggler, but before Cinque there would be people who would be referred to as jugglers who were magicians or who did perhaps, you can still find on eBay quite often, pictures of Indian performers who would do perhaps snake charming or, you know, a substitution trunk or something like that, even Perse acrobatics, and they're referred to as jugglers. It was very uh, unclear up until Cinque Valley what really juggling was so before you could say if you look in books and stuff if you see the word juggling being used you can't really be sure if they're talking about a magician or even a musician depending if you go far enough back it could be a musician or a storyteller so a valley is really the person to really set this in stone that juggling is specifically the tricks with the objects, and he was world famous, so I think that's also how his way of looking at it could become established.
0: And what years did his uh, career take place?
1: He, he started to, his juggling career in 1876, but he had his big breakthrough in 1885. Wow. And that's really when he became famous.
0: So he, was, he predates Rastelli. Did they ever sort of cross paths? Was there ever a meeting between... Rastelli and Cinquevalli?
1: Yeah, that's, that's something that I've thought a lot about, actually. Did they know about each other? And uh, Cinquevalli, he died in 1918, mm-hmm. and that is before Rastelli was famous.
0: Yeah. Rastelli,
1: he, he got famous in the 20s. So I, if I'm going to guess, I don't think that Cinquevalli knew about Rastelli, since he was not famous. He was just, you know, he was a boy sure. performing with his family in russia right and then rastelli he died in like 1931
0: something like that
1: so he died in 31 so he's thinking what about rastelli then did he if cinque valley didn't know about rastelli did rastelli know about cinque valley and that's a hard question to answer but the first little snippet of evidence is that if you look at rastelli's father alberto if you look at pictures of him you can see that in his Juggling outfit he uses similar clothing than Cinquevalli. Valley that's not evidence that he knows about him but but you could still imagine that maybe his father knew of Cinquevalli Valley and he he performed as a gentleman juggler, which was really started by Cinquevalli. Valley. This approach to juggling with everyday objects was a creation of him so the the clearest piece of evidence that I've found was that a contemporary with rastelli was a guy called chinko and chinko took his name as a lady off of Cinque valley real now i forget his real name is Knox.
0: He, he juggled the bicycle right he was the boy juggler chinko
1: no that's another guy chinko juggled the gramophone oh and... the
0: gramophone right right but he, he was like a boy he like wore shorts and
1: yeah 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 chinko I forget his real name now. It's something Knox, Tom Knox, or mm. uh, something like that. But, but Cinko, and I found a picture of Restelli and Cinko hanging out in private. <laughs> They're in Restelli's car in private clothing. So I was thinking that if uh, Restelli and Cinko were friends to the extent that they would hang out in private, you could imagine that Restelli would ask about Cinko's stage name where sure. he got it. Right. You
0: think you see them talk about other jugglers, and you know that's what that's what jugglers talk about.
1: Right. If we were hanging out, and you had some weird stage name, it's not completely unlikely that I would ask where you took that stage name from. Yeah. That I think is the strongest evidence that I I do think he knew about Chinkwivali. and that, in combination with the father being a salon gentleman type juggler in a similar outfit that Cinque Valley. So, my guess is that Cinque Valley did not know of Rastelli, but I'm pretty sure that Rastelli knew of Cinque Valley.
0: Now, if you look at Rastelli and the controversy surrounding his passing, what yeah. is your story of the, the the passing or the death of Rastelli? Was it caused by the the abscess in his mouth from a mouse stick?
1: Yeah, that's how the story goes, that he got a wound in his mouth from a splinter in the mouse stick, and the moon wound got infected. But I've read some different accounts about that, the, the kind of the medical explanation to how he, how he died, and from my understanding is that it's not from the wound in the mouth. You know, when you're when you're sick, if you have pneumonia and if you have the, those kind of, if you're very sick and, sick and you do physical practice, that can be very dangerous.
0: They said he had a, he was anemic and that he had some he had went yeah. to some gig. He was in an open car it was drafty he got sick exactly and, just, and it, back in that day just you get sick you died you know so
1: yeah exactly so i think he died because he practiced when he was ill I and mean, he didn't stop performing he did he was such a maniac on practicing i mean the stories of restelli practicing are just the craziest stories like there's he arranged his entire life so that he could just practice all day <laughs> and if, if you want to read a little bit about that there's a great little interview with his wife in a book called Star Turns uh, a guy called August Heinrich Kober who traveled a little bit with the circus where Rastelli worked and he interviewed them the family about Rastelli and it's a it's so there's a chapter in the book about Rastelli and the when you hear the wife talk about the life that they lived, then you really understand that he only practiced. And they even say that when he didn't practice, he was imagining himself practicing. <laughs> was her name Henrietta? Was that his widow's name, Henrietta? Yeah, that's correct. And he's also rumored that he would eat while practicing, That they would literally <laughs> bring him food as he was practicing. He would kind of eat as he was practicing. Hmm.
0: Yeah, because you see pictures of him like in the bathtub with the ball balanced on his yeah. head. And-
1: That's really Restelli that established this, you know, manic persona of the juggler that would just juggle everything all the time.
0: If you could go back in uh, history and uh, meet one of these famous historical jugglers, this might yeah. be difficult, but, but who would you choose? Would you choose a, a Rastelli or a Chiccavali, or is there someone else you might want to see in person?
1: My image of Rastelli is that he was not a very complex persona. I think he was a guy that practiced a lot. <laughs> right, right. Loved juggling, yeah. He loved juggling, and that's <laughs> what he wanted to do, and it was pretty clear to him. So I would have loved to meet him, of course, but I think there are more complex personalities that perhaps would be more interesting to know. And there, if I would give the top, it would probably be Cinquevalle, since I've researched him so much, and there's so many questions. It would probably be him or Salerno. They're both really interesting people.
0: So Lennaro was also an inventor, and you you strike me as somebody who's, certainly one of your inventions is the ghost cubes. Uh, Mm -hmm. People can see that on the internet. Let's sort of jump around a little bit. Uh, How did that come about? That's the, the interlocking boxes that compress and expand. What interested you in the ghost cubes?
1: That actually also has a connection to the history stuff, because when I was reading about history a lot and really, dug into the history of juggling, I realized that there's been this change in juggling quite recently where we buy all the props that we use. Right. And in the past, you, you would have to either make the props yourself or have someone make them for you. That was kind of the options that you had. That's a big change in juggling that we now can just call a juggling manufacturer and choose things out of a catalog. And when I thought about that, and I, I thought about this possibility that you could actually use any object for juggling, you don't need to use these standardized, uh, mass-produced ones, I got really interested in that process. I put the, that question before me, you know, what, what would happen if a juggler today had that same process that he had to create the prop based on the idea that he had, right. rather then the the situation that we're in most of the time is that we ha- we already have the props and we have to apply our ideas onto them and they already exist. Interesting. Okay. So it was kind of like an inverse situation there. You know, what if the idea get to shape the prop instead of the idea having to kind of adjust to what the already existing prop looks like? I wanted to kind of revisit that process of the old juggler and uh, so i re- i researched some different concepts and i i got stuck with the origami and paper folding mm-hmm. and i wanted to see if i could translate that to wood because i wanted a bigger object and paper becomes really flimsy when it's big right and i wanted so i wanted a distinct object that were in the realm of size of what a juggler would use so i started to try to translate that origami stuff to wood and that eventually became these wooden cubes that I called ghost cubes.
0: Now, is that something you're also trying to market? I remember we talked a bit about you trying to miniaturize it or, or to mass produce them. Is that, have you had any luck with that?
1: Well, basically what happened is that I worked on the ghost cubes for a while and then I put this video out online. It very quickly got, uh, became what they call viral. You know, it spreads like fire along the internet. and it was just seen everywhere and it's, it's kind of fun like google uh youtube has pretty good analytics so you can see where the views are located and the views i mean there were people in the cook islands watching ghosts
0: <laughs> okay. and
1: africa and south america and just everywhere so that was a lot of fun and i got a lot of emails from all over the world and a lot of people wanted to buy these right and i didn't have any for sale and they took really long to make and they were pretty big and a little bit fragile, and I got all kinds of offers. People wanted me to perform in different place and they mm. wanted me to come to South America and do some kind of video mapping project and there was all kinds of stuff happening at the same time. And I was just there, you know, in Sweden in my studio with these cubes and I didn't even have a way to transport them, you know. <laughs> they take right, a right. lot of space. I didn't even have a suitcase big enough. I didn't have a road case. <laughs> I didn't have anything. So I was just like I, I couldn't really fulfill any of these requests. You know, they were oh, they right. took too long to, to make, I couldn't sell them, I couldn't go really anywhere. And so I, I started to look a little bit into that, okay, if I'm going to travel with these, how, how would that look like, because I can't fit them in my backpack. I really laid low after that point.
0: Well, and the size of it was prohibitive. I mean, like you're saying, they're quite large. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And then if you, if you take away the size of it and you miniaturized it, part of maybe what makes it successful would also be eliminated yeah
1: yeah there was a lot of things to think about if you wanted to make them into that form that would be accessible for other people so that's basically something i've been tinkering with since that video got online not full time but I've, that project has been alive ever since but i haven't put anything out there because i want to be <laughs> i want to have a plan this time sure you know? <laughs> now your approach
0: to juggling seems very sort of interesting and thoughtful kind of not minimalistic, but sometimes you'll take something like a particular move and structure a routine around it, like uh, your head, you work with the head rolls or you work with the neck swings with the clubs, like the routine you did in the IGA. What about that kind of unique, like one technique type of routines interest you?
1: Right, yeah, that's interesting because when I was starting out, juggling was still like in the late '90s. It was still juggling. It was every trick had a name? It was the Rubenstein's Revenge or the so-and-so's shuffle, Luke's shuffle, and sure, the, the Holzman were...
0: Hurricane.
1: Exactly.
0: <laughs> that one never never caught on. <laughs> right.
1: That was how juggling was structured at, at the while. Right. Uh, for, at the time so to kind of approach juggling conceptually and be like well how about every trick that you could do with under the arm catches it wasn't that common to have that approach but in europe some jugglers were exploring juggling in that way and uh, later i found out that there's been a couple of jugglers in the past also who has explored juggling in that way the first one to really do it was a Spanish guy called Hugo Garrido.
0: Sure, the kickups.
1: Exactly. He explored just kickups. He had an act that was only kickups, and this is already in the 60s. So, right. I cannot take any credit for doing <laughs> conceptual explorations.
0: I always liked his name, Hugo Garrido. I always thought that was a name that rolled off your tongue.
1: Yeah, I like that name too.
0: And he wore like a matadors outfit. Was he the the fellow who did that? Like a big heavy. Matador's Jacket, is that Ugo Garrido I'm thinking of?
1: Yeah, but there was a bunch of jugglers that had a very similar outfit, yeah. like Nino Frediani and Pepito Alvarez. There's a bunch of people who performed, I think, it's a very Spanish type.
0: Let's do some, uh, some rapid fire, because we're, we're getting a little close to the end, and you and okay. I have a lot of opinions on, uh, on jugglers and juggling. I'm going to ask you some questions about particular subjects, and we can just sort of freeform on that. Go for it. Favorite juggling name, I'm going to say Surge Flash. I always thought that was a great name for a juggler. Surge Flash.
1: Yeah, that's great. I also like Serge Flash. I also like Bob Ripper. Oh, Bob Ripper. He yeah. died quite
0: young in a plane accident, didn't he, Bob Ripper? Yeah,
1: that was very tragic.
0: I always thought Tommy Curtin was quite mm, good, Tommy too. Tommy Curtin, yeah, that's, <laughs> a fun,
1: that's a good one, too. <laughs> Yeah, Tommy. Uh, another funny one, I think, is Gildova. Sure. What about his father? Right, his father's name was. Exactly, because <laughs> the father was a contortionist called Bendova, and Bendova that becomes a funny thing. And I just think it thinks it's hilarious that then he has a son and it's like, oh well, I'm Gil, you know. <laughs>
0: <It's>,
1: yeah. <laughs> it has no punch, so.
0: Sure, sure. You're, it's not Bendova. That's kind uh, of a funny. I always like Chris Cremo, Those names with the uh, the alliteration. Yeah. The names starting the same letter, Chris Cremo. and maybe just because you hear them at a certain time. I always thought Dick Franco was a was a good name too. So I just remember that the video from America, Dick Franco. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed like a juggler's name. There was a Mount Rushmore of jugglers. I think that's what four. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Four. Yeah. Well, who would be on this Mount Rushmore? Would you have? Uh, Well, you go ahead. I know who I'd have on it. Who would your four jugglers on Mount Rushmore be?
1: Two of them are really easy. That's Cinque and Restelli. Because Cinque was the most famous juggler to ever be alive. And Restelli, yeah, also very famous. And I think that that's very easy to put the two great ones up there. Yeah, then it gets tricky. Then it gets tricky. Uh, If I'd put another two, I'd probably put Gatto and Alexander Kiss.
0: Oh, nice. Because I, I would think maybe Francis Brunn, Gatto, or maybe Brunn and uh, Bob Brompson. Oh, you know. It's so then it gets really tricky, you know, because there's yeah, so many... it
1: gets tricky. I mean, Francis Brunn was great. I think he's still somehow related to Restelli in terms of what he did. He's he's a version of Restelli. But he's
0: iconic. I mean, if you look at the ones who are iconic,
1: yeah, he's iconic. But but uh, then if you had to choose between the two, I think Restelli was more iconic and had a greater imprint also on what juggling became after him.
0: Maybe even like a Bobby May, because if you look at like, well, someone to represent that American style, that, you know, the sort of vaudeville.
1: Yeah, most definitely. And also Bella Cremo, the father of Chris Cremo.
0: I really like that act they did together. You've seen that, of course, on video, the two Cremos
1: together. Yeah, it's great. It's really, it's that void after Restelli. When Restelli died in the 30s, everybody was doing really technical stuff, and right. no one, nobody could really pick up the crown. So then juggling changed a lot in the 30s. So it became this minimalist approach, like Bella Cremo and Bobby May. and The
0: three-piece jugglers. Yeah. yeah.
1: Exactly, like we ball.
0: Now, it's easy for me to say I have a favorite juggler, like, I always say Chris Cremo, simply because, you know, he was the, the first professional I saw on TV. He was the one that, that made me change my mind about juggling. I just loved his style, his presentation. Could you say you have a favorite juggler?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, it would be it's, it's a boring answer, but Cinquevalle and Restelli, I think, are my favorites. But Michael Motion is definitely up there, too. I think Mm. he was very influential.
0: As far as jugglers of the present, who do you think that, like, if you wanted to say, like, okay, here's five jugglers of the present, like, maybe they won't go on to have the careers of the Rastelli's or the Cincavali's, but who do you think have have importance today? Like, certainly you would say Jay Gilligan, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe in his way jason garfield in his way you know, has, uh, yeah i
1: think so i think he's so. made that
0: kind of impact i mean are there others that will be looked on in the from the future as sort of like uh, maybe michael motion of course
1: yeah definitely michael motion i think he's in terms of imprint on i'm not going to talk about success but in terms of imprint on how juggling evolved i think he's probably the third most influential juggler of all time And I would would put
0: Michael Davis on that list. I mean, certainly in my life, and my career.
1: In terms of the comedy people, yeah.
0: And how do you look at the comedy jugglers? I mean, do you feel like that's sort of a lesser... Like, I think some people would look at, like, technical juggling, artistic juggling. And they'd put the comedy juggler as less important.
1: And uh, I don't think they're less important. But I would divide comedy jugglers kind of in two categories, in a way. Because you could have a comedy juggler that has, like, a... Running patter going like a talking comedy juggler,
0: sure, like a Gaston Palmer or somebody like that, or
1: yeah, or, or Michael Davis, I think is really the iconic one. But then you could have another type of comedy juggler mm-hmm. who is more the physical comedy, like Rebla or Gildova, Stan or,
0: Kavanaugh or someone exactly. like that. Exactly,
1: that that's kind of that's a little bit another genre in a way. They differ in that way, and I don't think that distinction has been made really. We talk about comedy jugglers and we kind of group everybody who's funny on stage and do juggling.
0: I always think of them as eccentric jugglers, like the, the talking juggler and then, then the eccentric juggler with the juggler who, who juggled in a funny manner.
1: Right, right. But yeah, yeah, you could say that, I guess. I think when I hear the word eccentric, I think about these people who are really, had a really specific, like uh, King Rep or, right. or what's this guy, Rich Hayes that had really weird... <laughs> Specific uh, personas, you know, King Rep had the, the top hat and the big mustache, and kind of like the aristocratic look. And Rich Hayes had a very weird, kind of clown mime look. Uh, and they were referred to as eccentric jugglers. I don't know specifically that class, these classifications, but yeah, you, I guess you could go over that and see that some of these funnier people maybe could be eccentrics too. Yeah.
0: that reminds me of the story that when me and Barry went to audition for the uh, ice capades, mm-hmm. they heard we were comedy jugglers and we said, you know, we're comedy jugglers. They thought that meant we juggled funny things. Oh, so they go, no, we talk on stage. I always thought of like Rob Murray, like the, the change between Rob Murray, who, who just sort of had that hatter, like I said, that went with the juggling, but it was more like a sides, you know, good yeah. show drummer. And then yeah. Michael Davis was sort of this patter-based, almost sort of a stand-up mm-hmm. story-based, you know, where the comedy and the laughs became, as the juggling became maybe simplified, Yeah, the the comedy aspect of it increased. Let me get to some more of my rapid-fire uh, questions here. Mm-hmm. Okay, greatest juggling trick ever performed? I have two of them in mind. Okay. In your, in your mind, this, they had to be performed, like, to an audience.
1: Okay. Well, I, I thought about that actually at the IJA Festival this year and with the Tony Furcos, Like he did seven ping pong balls, right? Or nine? He did seven
0: without his hands, but I think he would be able to, like most people, if you think of seven, you're forcing them in with your
1: hands. Yeah, so he did seven with only the mouth. Yeah, but more like, I mean,
0: a little bit more than a flash. Like when I, I saw him pretty much at his peak. Yeah. I met him in uh, Paris, like in the late 70s. Yeah. and we we got to see him rehearse. we got to see you know see his show. and he was the master with five, like he could right, do five right, right. forever, and he could do seven, but i don't I don't know if he ever like performed seven okay more than a flash or maybe nine spits or something like that. you know. I'm no expert.
1: I just thought about it now because it's one of these tricks that I never knew of or thought of before this time. and then I heard about this, and I'm like, okay, that's that's an incredible feat, I think.
0: He was freakishly fast. He was able to spit them out yeah. in a freakishly fast manner. Yeah, like he'd get five out, like, P-p-p-p-p-p-p-p-p. I mean, it was just like amazingly quick. And he could do yeah. five till they dried out. I mean, basically, yeah. the water would, you know, it would be dry out of him, and his mouth would get so dry he'd have to stop.
1: Right, right, right. But did you say you wanted the absolute greatest trick? Well, I mean, to me, there's
0: something about the aesthetics. Like, I like that one, Yuri Borzikin, on the big rolling globe. He has the Borsican, uh platform with the ball bouncing on it while he's throwing the five large, maybe like volleyball-sized balls. And he holds it yeah. for while he's like, going across the ring. I think difficulty, aesthetics, the way I look and feel about that trick, I go, wow. That's one of the greatest tricks I've ever seen. Yeah,
1: I totally agree.
0: That and the Montego finish with the, the Brun finish on the unicycle.
1: Yeah, I agree. I don't even have to answer these questions. <laughs> you already okay. know the answers, well, the <laughs> But if I'm going to try to add something, I mean, Jenny Jagger did some really incredible things, balancing really big objects as she was juggling. I think those are incredible pictures.
0: Maybe the best you've ever seen. Like, I think maybe one of the best I've ever seen was uh, Gregory Popovich. When uh, I first saw him at a European festival, when he was just really at, at his peak. Like, I mean, he was on the tall free-standing ladder. Mm -hmm. Because he'd be on the tall, free-standing ladder on top of a table. Like, the table had to be two or three feet above the ground. And the ladder, and he'd have the platforms on top of the ladder that he'd be doing these hard tricks. Five club back crosses. I think he did seven or nine rings. Mm. So that was amazing to see live. Because he had to be 20, 25 feet up in the air or something. So that was pretty impressive to see live.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I saw Gato live a few times, and that's probably the top for me.
0: What about Greatest Feet Ever Achieved? Like, you see some of these numbers records recently. W- which of these impresses you the most?
1: Well, was it the other day? 33 catches with the Telsa? I mean, that's incredible. I think the 11 catches with the ni- with the nine clubs is incredible, too.
0: Yeah, that one the other day, the 33 with... Te- was that Alex Barron? Is that his name? Yeah. Wow, because because you're going wow, that's a good looking pattern. I do like the uh, Kublikov ten ball multiplex. Oh yeah, with with the all ten up pirouette.
1: Yeah, that's incredible. And this fourteen that he does too.
0: Yeah, I'm right, gonna get back to your specialty. Enough about
1: my attitudes.
0: What was your best historical discovery? Like you're, you're researching, did you ever come across something where you're like, oh my gosh, this is like a a treasure trove of information. Your best historical discovery.
1: My best historical discovery is probably how incredibly famous Cinquevalle was. I did not understand that when I started researching juggling and then I started looking in these newspaper archives in Australia and America and England and this just doesn't end. His footprint in media is just enormous.
0: Back in that that day that I mean what they had mostly Newspaper reports? or
1: Yeah, newspaper articles and advertisements and stuff like that. You know, beforehand, I always thought that Rastelli was the most famous juggler of all time. But then I realized that Cinquevalli had a much bigger fame. Not too too many people know about him these days. I would say that's probably the biggest discovery that I made.
0: I always say, and I'm sure I've said this before on the podcast, that the fact that Rastelli died young was like the biggest blow to juggling. Because if he had gone to, on to be like a touring performer, like the way yeah. uh, Blackstone or the famous Dunninger, or the magicians did, that if, yeah. if the tradition of the, of the one man or the troop of jugglers coming to town became a thing, that could have started everything differently. We could have been, had our own shows and could have been celebrities in our own rights.
1: Yeah, the, I totally agree with you. And I think Restelli did that at the end. He kind of had his own...
0: Well, didn't he do like twenty-five minutes, or?
1: I've heard that he did up to forty-five. Forty-five. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I should <laughs> check that clearly, exactly those references. But that's rumor-wise, I've heard up to forty-five minutes. And also, I've heard that he was so excited about performing that they had to have a guy specifically backstage, to calm him down when he came <laughs> off stage. <laughs>
0: That's funny. Eh? But
1: the tragedy with Ristelli passing, in terms of juggling, not getting a, like a household name or that kind of establishment that you talk about, in a way, it's the same with Cinque Valle because he was also super famous. And then the First World War came, and since right. he had German roots, he was uh, shut out. So when he died, no one really... He also died during the war, so that, of course, made it a little bit harder in terms of celebrations and stuff. But if Cinque Valle would have gotten to live a full life and end his career with sure. respect and, and all of that, I think he, he would have been remembered in, another, in a different way than he did. So, in a way, we lost both our chances there.
0: <laughs> and where do you see uh, juggling going? We've talked about the past. Now, where do you see... Like, what do you think about competitive juggling? Is that something you think has a future or that you're interested in?
1: I really love the competitive stuff, especially when you can purify it and you can really pinpoint what it is that we're competing about. Like, if you take, for example, an IGA competition, it's very difficult to judge, I think.
0: Yeah.
1: So I'm more, I think, in terms of competitions, I'm more aligned with like a numbers competition or things like that but it's something that i think a lot about you know how how would you structure a competition did
0: you see the uh, individual props this year at the iga that one i missed unfortunately so i think that's more in line with the way it should be where like it's like gymnastics where you have apparatus like you have the, the floor exercise or the rings yeah maybe maybe yeah i think the one thing we have to do is get the diablo players out of the main competition I agree. I think competing Diablo versus uh, Toss juggling has proven itself to be sort of unfair seeing how many times the Diablo players come out on top.
1: Yeah, you either do that or you have to re-evaluate how difficult Diablo is because Diablo has gotten such a big boom. Yeah. So that you see three, four, even five Diablos these days. You're like, oh my gosh, this is incredible and amazing. But it has gotten up to the point where it's almost like five clubs. Well, I always look at risk
0: factor. I was looking at this, this guy's trick the other day. I think his name is Johan Welton.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. It's from Sweden.
0: Yeah, he does this trick at the end where he's doing a seven-ball drop lift bounce while turning yeah. around in a circle. Yeah. Uh, but, but he holds it for, and this is like in a performance or something, he must hold it for, I don't know, 100 throws or something, it seems like. Yeah. It just goes on and on. I'm thinking every one of those throws, the possibility of an explosion, of dropping... So that one trick, I think, wow, that one trick had more risk and difficulty than like an entire Diablo act, just as far as one ball could explode and, and hit other balls.
1: Yeah, the, the number of times that it could fail is far greater there than the Diablo act. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And I think there's a lot of discussions that could be had in terms of how to structure competition to become more distinct.
0: And you and I can have a lot more discussions about a lot of things. We're trying to get towards the end of our time. So any kind of final thoughts you want to, as, as where you see juggling going or what you want to kind of, if you were to give some, some younger jugglers some advice who are wanting to become professionals or wanting to get into juggling, whether it's a practice technique or a technique about creativity, what do you think it takes to be a great juggler? Let's put it that way. What advice would you give someone who wants to be a great juggler?
1: Well, I think you have to like To practice. If you don't like practicing, I don't think you're gonna make it in terms of technical accomplishments.
0: Yeah, has to has to call to you, doesn't it? I mean, you have to have to wake up going, I can't wait to get to practice. I mean, that's yeah. Because it takes what would you think? It's probably diminishing returns, but do you think maybe four or five hours a day to really excel as a juggler? What would you think the the a good practice regime would be to to sort of be a top juggler?
1: I think if you practice, it depends a little bit on how, how well structured you are. I think that you could do well with two hours of practice, or obviously you can do that because that's what Gatto did. Right. But he was incredibly structured. And another incredible juggler is Ofek. Sneer? Yeah, from Israel. Yeah. He also has a super distinct practice session that he does, and it's proven to be, give him great results
0: He's also a specialist, though. I mean, if you look at, like, okay, you know, give me two hours a day focusing on one prop. If you're going to specialize, I think that's more the way to go. Yeah. As far as getting something nowadays that's polished enough to to be presentable
1: at a high level. But I think just to wrap up what you said about Uh practicing, I think Bobby May put it pretty well. He said that it takes eight years to become a decent juggler or something along those lines. And I think that's, pretty much right. If you dedicate yourself for eight years, a few hours a day, I think you can be a good juggler.
0: I think there's always a difference too between the ones who start young, the ones who start at six or seven, and the ones who start more like in their teens, that you never can quite get that uh, consistency.
1: I think so too, but you can tell the difference on just how rooted their juggling is in their body, so to speak. But I think also that juggling, you can tell when someone is older and they juggle. I know, for example, Sergei Ignatov said that you learn to throw at 30. <laughs> okay. And I think there's a lot of... Uh, I, I can totally relate to that. There's some kind of understanding that came when I got a bit older about how juggling actually works in terms of precision and how you just break it down in your head and stuff. I, I really thought there was a lot of truth to that statement
0: interesting interesting okay well let's like i say i don't want to i just want to keep talking with you eric but i guess i should i should wrap it up i should thank you and thank you so much for coming out to the festival this year and and taking part and being such a big part of the 70th uh, ij in cedar rapids i really appreciate all you did out there i just want to say thank you so much this has been a really nice chat
1: Yeah, thank you and i I think we could have a lot of discussions like this. I think I also want to thank you for a great festival. I've been to the IJA 3 times now. I think this was probably the best festival out of those 3. I think you had a great mix of performers and you managed to attract a lot of people and it was a great gym and yeah, it was a really good time there. Well, thank you Eric. Yeah, I also want to say that if people are interested in discussing the definition of juggling, they should go to objectepisodes.com and i'll try to explain my ideas as as good as i can
0: and i think we should promote one more project too because you're involved in a project with niels dunker Karl heinz and also of course my wife karen holzman who's doing all the graphics arts and the layout of carl Heinz's uh, book that's coming out so maybe you yeah. tell people how they could find out about that
1: yeah, Carline Seaton's book that's supposed to be out 25 years ago or something like that <laughs> is finally, it's finally yeah. done. And you can go to jugglinghistory.com and you will find information about that book. And I think the book is pretty much done now. I don't want to say that it's completely done, but I think it's, it's going to be out very, very, very soon. So check out that website and you'll know. Thank you, Eric.
0: Hey, thank you so much for being on Drop Everything. Thank you so much, Mr. Eric O'Berry. Thanks, Dan. All right, thank you, Eric. I hope you enjoyed podcast number 50 with my special guest, Eric O'Berry. I enjoyed our conversation, and I hope to have many more conversations with Eric in the years to come. All right, let's thank our sponsors, the IJA. What's that stand for? International Jugglers Association. Where can I find them? Juggle.org How about the Ringdama? I've seen it on the internet. I've seen kids play with it. We're going to get one of my own. How about Ringdama.com? And wait a minute. What about the LED Ringdama? The Zingdama. Well, you can get that from Zing Toys. All right. Next up is number 51 with another special guest. So until then, drop everything except when you're juggling.